Tonight, we'll cover the conception and birth of Jesus Christ and what we commonly think of as the Christmas story. God sent the angel Gabriel to a virgin named Mary, who lived in a village in Galilee called Nazareth. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Hail, O favored one, endued with grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed and favored of God are you among all other women. Some translations say before or above all other women. But when Mary saw him, she was greatly troubled, disturbed, and confused at what he said and kept revolving in her mind at what such a greeting might mean. Now, folks, it's a good thing for us that Mary was confused about Gabriel's greeting because that greeting has been misinterpreted by many Christian groups for centuries. And since Mary was confused at Gabriel's greeting, Gabriel himself explains what it means in the next verse. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found grace, free spontaneous favor, and loving kindness with God. And listen, you will become pregnant and will give birth to a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and eminent and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his forefather David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob throughout the ages. Of his reign there will be no end. Folks, the Most High is one of God's many titles. The Most High because there is nothing or no one higher than God. And she will give birth to a son that will be called the Son of the Most High. Mary is the only woman on the entire planet in all of earth history who can make the claim that she carried, gave birth to, and then raised the child who was the human incarnation of God himself. Unfortunately, a lot of Christian groups attempt to either downplay this or make it something bigger into what it really is, and they misinterpret Gabriel's initial greeting to Mary as a reason for it. But Gabriel explained what he meant. Think about this. Our salvation is because of Jesus' completed work on the cross. And today, right now, as I'm speaking, he is seated on his Father's throne in heaven as an intercessor for us to the Father. But it all started with nine months inside a human womb. And that human was Mary. It's not to be taken lightly. Let's honor Mary for who she is and what she did. But on the other hand, she shouldn't be worshipped. You can go too far in either direction. Don't downplay what happened by ignoring the fact that she carried our Lord to term. I mean, wow. And God chose her. Why? I don't know. But what an honor. On the other hand, she's only human. You can't put her on the same level of honor and respect that's due to Jesus Christ. Mary didn't pre-exist the creation as a member of the Trinity like Jesus did. She didn't create the heavens and the earth with God the Father as Jesus did. She's human. And she didn't apply for this position. She didn't earn it. God freely chose to choose her. That's what Gabriel's entire greeting means. So honor her on the one hand, but don't get carried away. Now there's something else here in Gabriel's announcement to Mary that a lot of people skip over. Not only would her son be called the Son of the Most High, but that God would give to him the throne of his forefather David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob throughout the ages, and of his reign there will be no end. Now Gabriel isn't the first one to mention this. It's promised all throughout the Old Testament that the coming king would sit on David's throne forever. 
People wonder about that because David's throne doesn't exist anymore, and it didn't exist in Mary's day either. The king that they had back then was an Edomite appointed by Rome. And right now, as we speak, Jesus is on a throne, but it's not David's throne. Jesus is seated on his father's throne. And in no time has Jesus ever sat at David's throne. So not all of Gabriel's promise to Mary here has been fulfilled yet. Some people don't take that part of the promise seriously. They tend to think many of the prophecies of Jesus' rule over the earth have been dismissed since Israel rejected him as their Messiah. But that rejection wasn't a surprise. It was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, an Old Testament book. And Gabriel knew about Isaiah. That same book also prophesied the virgin birth. And it didn't get dismissed. This is one of those little areas where today's Christians kind of skirt over this because we try to separate the spiritual from the political and the scientific. But the more you understand all three, the more you realize that you really can't separate them. Ephesians talks about spiritual warfare that influences the physical world, including the world of politics. And since God created the universe, all of the laws of physics were put into place by God, not by scientists. And Jesus will one day physically sit on David's throne and be a political leader of the planet Earth. And this fact has been confirmed all throughout the Old Testament, both the virgin birth and the eternal kingdom, which Jesus will one day physically, literally rule on a physical throne on the planet Earth. Try separating politics from religion then. You won't be able to separate religion from science then either because God will remove the curse that he put upon the earth after Adam and Eve fell to sin. The laws of physics will completely change. Speaking of the laws of physics, Mary is a virgin, and she's well aware of this. And she asks Gabriel, How can this be, since I have no intimacy with any man as a husband? Then the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the holy, pure, and sinless thing which shall be born of you will be called the Son of God. The word overshadowed here is the same word that is used in Exodus 40 to describe the presence of God in the Holy of Holies of the temple. The virgin birth. Folks, have you ever wondered why it had to be a virgin birth? There are several reasons, but I'm just going to focus on two of the most important ones. God is one God. But because God exists in more than three dimensions, he exists in more than one person. To the best of our knowledge of the scripture, there appears to be three of them. We have a problem with that because of our limited three-dimensional thinking. But God is a single God with three persons in a higher dimension. One of those three persons separated himself from the other two to become a human being inside our dimension of reality. And the reason why it had to be a virgin birth is because when a man and a woman have sex and conceive, a brand new life is formed. But the second member of the Trinity was already alive. He wasn't human yet, but he was already living. This is how Jesus could be called God and be called the Son of God at the same time. All three members of the Trinity are the eternal God. No member is ranked higher or lower than the other. All three of them are God himself. But the second member of the Trinity lowered himself and entered into our dimension of reality to become a human being. He is literally God in the flesh. But because he was born of a virgin who was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, the human she would conceive would literally be called the Son of God, just as Gabriel told her. That's one reason why it had to be a virgin birth. The second reason is because the imperfection of man, the mortality of man, the sin nature of man... 
All of that is in our genes. It's in our DNA. It's in our bloodline. And it's passed on through the male. Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 points out that it's through Adam that all have sinned. All of us are sons and daughters of Adam. The human being who would be God in the flesh would have to be a direct creation of God to skip over all that. So that's why it had to be a virgin birth. Then the angel said to Mary, Listen, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and now it is during the sixth month of her pregnancy, she who was called the barren one. With God nothing is impossible, and no word from God shall be without power or impossible of fulfillment. That's an awesome line, folks. I've got it highlighted in my Bible. With God, nothing is impossible. That doesn't mean he'll do anything you want. He won't violate his word or his nature. Remember, God is perfect in every way, not just his power. But as for what's possible, you include God in something, you put him in the equation, there are no limits to how high something can get or what can be achieved. With God, nothing is impossible. And when Gabriel said no word from God was without power or impossible fulfillment... He was referring to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which was written around 700 years before Mary's day. It says, quote, The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the young woman who is unmarried and a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which after translation means God with us, unquote. Then Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to what you have said. And the angel left her. Now, folks, it was at this time that there was an incident with Joseph. That doesn't get recorded here in Luke. But it does get recorded in Matthew. So to follow the chronology, let's go over to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. We're going to find out that Joseph may not have bought this whole idea that Mary was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. As far as he knew, she was a virgin. And he knew he hadn't had intercourse with her. But now she's pregnant. And the official story is that she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ took place under these circumstances. When his mother Mary had been promised in marriage to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And her promised husband Joseph, being a just and upright man, not willing to expose her publicly, the King James says not willing to make her a public example, he was minded to put her away privately. So in other words, folks, no matter what the official story was, this was not Joseph's baby, period. So him, being a just and upright man, he felt that it wasn't his place to be married to her. But he didn't want to make a big deal out of it. He didn't want to publicly humiliate her or disgrace her. So he decided to dismiss the engagement quietly and in secret. Verse 20. But as he was thinking this over, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, descendant of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which in Hebrew means Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. A couple of points here. I think it's interesting that an angel in this case doesn't materialize in the real world while he is awake, but instead chooses to appear to him in a dream. Maybe Joseph's heart wouldn't have been able to stand the stress of a daytime visit. A lot of things are easier to cope with in that foggy, dreamlike state. Dreams can at times be extremely vivid, but the thoughts of the mind are timeless. You ever noticed how once a dream starts, you're not disoriented? 
You don't have to have someone sit you down first to explain to you where you are, what you're playing, and what's happening in the plot so far. I remember once I dreamed I was a teacher at a school. And the funny thing about that was I didn't dream the training that I needed to be a teacher. I didn't dream the job interview. I didn't dream my first day as a teacher. But apparently, in the world of my dream, all of that did take place. Because I was a teacher. It was normal. I knew I was a teacher. And I never questioned, what am I doing here? I'm not a teacher. To steal a line from an old Twilight Zone, a dream is complete with its own past, and as long as you stay asleep, its own future. And there's something about that world you participate in while you're dreaming, folks. For some reason, the ability to grasp things is quicker, and the ability to believe the unbelievable is also somewhat easier. The emotional stability that's necessary to accept things, which in the real world would scare the crap out of us, is also present in dreams, for whatever reason. And it's my opinion that this is probably why God, all throughout the Bible, at times communicates to people in dreams. Not directly, but by a vision. And in this case, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. But anyway, the angel confirms for him that Mary's son really is of the Holy Spirit. The angel tells him, don't be afraid to marry her. She's telling you the truth. And then the angel even confirms the name. He says, you are to name him Jesus, which in the Hebrew tense means Savior, but in the Greek, the name Jesus means literally, God is salvation. Verse 22. All this took place that it might be fulfilled, which the Lord has spoken through the prophet Isaiah, quote, Behold, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which when translated means God with us, unquote. That's from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took her to his side as his wife, but he had no union with her as her husband until she had borne her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph married her, but chose not to have intercourse with her until after Jesus was born. Now, to continue the chronology, let's go back to the book of Luke and start in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In those days it occurred that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole Roman Empire should be registered. This was the first tax enrollment, and it was made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Folks, here's an example of where Bible skeptics will try to prove that the Bible isn't accurate. The King James Bible says the governor of Syria was Serenius. Atheists and agnostics love to pull out this Bible verse in the King James and then say, Did you know that they've proven that Serenius wasn't governor over Syria during the first census? Hmm? The governor over Syria during the first census was Governor Quirinius, not Serenius. Serenius was governor over Syria much earlier. See, your Bible's wrong. Throw it away. There is no God. Well, this kind of stuff happens a lot, by the way. Get used to it. It turns out that they're partially correct. There was a previous governor over Syria named Serenius, and they're also correct in that the governor over Syria during the first census was Governor Quirinius. But Quirinius wasn't his full name. His full name was Serenius something something Quirinius. And when the Bible was translated into the King James English, they just carried over Serenius and dropped the Quirinius. The King James translators didn't know that in the 20th century and beyond, there would be people who study the Bible even more than some Christians do, trying to discredit it. So that's why you'll notice the King James translation is the only translation that calls the governor of Syria, Serenius. While all of the other translations call him Quirinius. Both translations are accurate. Both names belonged to the same governor. But because there was another governor beforehand with the name Serenius, the newer translations only use Quirinius, to shut the atheists up. 
because it's the part of his name that's unique to this particular time period of the first census. Whenever someone comes up with evidence that proves the Bible is wrong, quote-unquote, all you have to do is just a little homework, and you'll always discover that the claim is invalid. Always. As a matter of fact, that's why most atheists who are dead serious about debunking the Bible will usually wind up becoming Christians themselves. Because in their attempts to seriously debunk it, they discover themselves how accurate it is. Those who don't really aren't serious about debunking the Bible. They just want to discredit it in the minds of Christians and advance their own agenda regardless of what the truth is. So anyway, back to Luke. In those days it occurred that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole Roman Empire should be registered. This was the very first tax enrollment and it was made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all of the people were going to be registered, each to his own city or town. And Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to the town of David in Judea called Bethlehem. Joseph was of the house and family of David. And he went to be enrolled with Mary, his espoused wife, who was about to become a mother. While they were there, the time came for her delivery. And she gave birth to a son, her firstborn. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room or place for them in the inn. So Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem to get counted in the census. And so was everyone else of that area. So there's a lot going on. And while they were there, Mary goes into labor. And of course, they attempted to get somewhere that was comfortable and clean, but there was no room for them in their local inn because everyone from out of town was there to take part in the census. So they wind up in a barn somewhere. And it says that she wrapped the baby in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Swaddling clothes were long strips of cloth to keep the baby's arms from being bent in the wrong direction. It was to keep them straight and unharmed. And the word manger there is a word that we're used to hearing because of all the Christmas songs. But a manger was a barnyard feeding trough. Just in case you ever start to feel underappreciated, always remember that our Creator, the King of the Universe, spent His very first moments on the planet Earth in a barnyard feeding trough. Verse 8, in that vicinity there were shepherds living out under the open sky in the field, watching over their flocks by night. It was the night shift. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord flashed and shone all about them. And they were terribly frightened. The King James says they were sore afraid. This is one of those occasions where the King James uses language that's foreign to our ears, but it's actually more accurate than any other translation. All other translations say they were terrified or terribly frightened. Only the King James says they were sore afraid. Not so afraid, that's kind of what we hear when someone reads it out loud, but it's S-O-R-E, as in physically sore. The emotional fear that they had was so intense that they physically felt it. It was a fear that gripped their entire body. You know, our imagination is incredibly dependent these days on what we've seen on TV. Most productions ever made about the Christmas story are low in budget and most of the time low in grammatical study. And of course many churches across America attempt to recreate some of this as a display so people can drive through it as a Christmas outing. But what we usually see are some shepherds standing in the presence of some attractive young girls wearing white sheets and what they'll usually do is to try to make it dark everywhere else and then shine a spotlight on the young girls with their arms spread out. But I don't think attractive young girls in a spotlight wearing white sheets would make me sore afraid. First of all, angels always appear throughout the entire Bible in the masculine. 
And once again, read the fine print here. It says the glory of the Lord shone all about them, not the glory of the angel, the glory of the Lord. How do you recreate that as a display for Christmas drivers? All throughout the Bible, when the light of God is present, it's blinding. It's brighter than the sun. So try to imagine you're a shepherd watching over sheep, and it's the night shift. Just another night in the fields watching over the sheep. And this is back in the days before automobiles and interstate highways, so it was extremely quiet. You didn't hear the distant sound of cars on the road or the occasional jet flying overhead. And then out of nowhere, suddenly, a masculine supernatural entity materializes right next to you. It didn't walk over the hill or fly down from the sky. It just suddenly appeared right there in your presence, accompanied by the radiant, blinding brightness of God's glory, which lit up the entire area. When I was a kid, I used to notice how when lightning flashes at night, for a brief moment during each lightning flash, it looks almost like daylight. You can see everything, but only for a fraction of a second during the lightning flash. Well, this isn't lightning. This is the glory of the Lord. And it says, the glory of the Lord flashed and shone all about them. The King James and other translations just says it shone all about them. The Amplified brings out the precise Greek. It did shine all around them, yes, but it also flashed. So instead of a steady glow, the light was flashing. And the effects of this blinding, flashing, radiant light shone all about them. And it wasn't coming from the angel that was standing next to them. It was the glory of the Lord. The entire landscape was probably as bright as daylight. So try to keep your limited imagination due to Hollywood's lame attempts at recreating this from really appreciating what's happening here in these verses. Everything these shepherds knew to be their reality was interrupted and put on hold for this superphysical trans-dimensional display, and they were sore afraid. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all people. For to you is born this day in the town of David a Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you by which you will recognize him. You will find, after searching, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then suddenly, there appeared with the angel an army of the troops of heaven, a heavenly knighthood, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. Just a couple of notes about some of the words in here, folks. The King James, the American Standard, the NIV, and the Living Bible all say, suddenly there appeared with the angel a heavenly host. A host in this sense with a military term. That's why the Amplified Translation goes all the way and translates it the troops of heaven, a heavenly knighthood. These are the angels that are engaged in battle against the forces of darkness all around us, 24 hours a day. And all throughout the Old Testament... Satan had been doing everything he could to stop this night from coming. We see a lot of it in the scriptures through the manifestation of satanic influence over world affairs. What we don't see is the war that's going on behind the scenes, or to use a biblical term, behind the veil. And for a moment here, these particular shepherds are getting a glimpse of a bigger reality that we don't normally see. The troops of heaven. Also notice here that it says they were praising God, saying, not singing. The King James, the Amplified, the New American Standard, and the NIV all translate this accurately. The angelic army praised God, saying. We tend to imagine angels in the feminine floating around singing like a church choir. But this wasn't singing. This was the masculine troops of the armies of heaven cheering. The Living Bible is the only translation that says they were singing. And that's an inaccurate paraphrase. They were cheering. 
they cheered, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. Now here's a case where the King James gets it wrong. The King James says peace and good will toward men. The original Greek said peace to men of good will. Or more precisely, peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste. Now, I don't know how long the shepherds stood there before they took off. The Bible says that they went with haste, but not until after they said to each other, Let's go check this out. And they didn't say that until after the angels disappeared. So, I just wonder how much time passed between the moment the angels disappeared and the moment they said to each other, let's go over to Bethlehem to check this out. I wonder how long they stood there in the dark after being blinded by the shining, flashing radiance of God's glory and having the inside of their chest vibrate from the base of the roaring cheers of the armies of heaven. I've often thought about this entire scenario when I'm standing outside at night. You know, I look up at the stars and it's dark and it's quiet. And I tried to imagine the sky being filled by the armies of heaven with bright blinding light while hearing the unison cheers of them saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. And then suddenly the armies disappear, the cheering stops, the blinding light is gone, and then suddenly everything's back to normal. Again with the stillness and the darkness of night, like nothing ever happened. I don't know about you, but I need just a moment to process all this, or at least catch my breath. But the scriptures say, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste, and after searching, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known what had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it were astounded and marveled at what the shepherds told them. But Mary kept within herself all of these things and weighed them and pondered them in her heart. Once again, try to imagine this, folks. Mary and Joseph didn't witness any supernatural display. Mary and Joseph's supernatural moment was months earlier when they were told by an angel what was going to happen. But since then, it's been a waiting game. And when the time for her delivery came, it didn't seem like everything was falling into place. I mean, what timing? Now, of all times, while she's nine months pregnant, Caesar Augustus decides that there has to be a census by law, and everybody had to travel to their original home to be counted. You know, now, of all times, Caesar's law became Murphy's law, right? And then when labor hits, guess what? There's no room at the inn. So she has the baby in a barn and puts him in a feeding trough. No fireworks, no trumpets blasting, just a regular birth. But then... Here comes these shepherds with this incredible story about what they heard and saw. I mean, no matter who you are in this story, there's a lot to process and talk about. I'm sure the shepherds and Joseph had a long talk about this, but Mary just went through labor, and she's taking all of this in. And she's just quietly laying all of these things up in her heart, weighing them and pondering them over. And the shepherds returned to their fields, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen just as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when the baby was to be circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time for the mother's purification and the baby's dedication came, according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be set apart and dedicated and called holy to the Lord. And they came also to offer up a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, which is a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Actually, folks, there's more to it than that. You'll find all these requirements laid out in Exodus chapter 13, verses 1, 2, and 12, Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, and Numbers chapter 8, verse 17. You'll notice here it says that Mary and Joseph came up to offer up a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons, as a sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 12, you're supposed to offer up a lamb as a sacrifice. But a lamb costs money. And if you weren't financially able to offer up a lamb, then Leviticus had a loophole that would allow two turtle doves or two young pigeons as a substitute. I say loophole, that might not be an appropriate term, but you get the idea. You're supposed to offer up a lamb. But if you couldn't afford a lamb, two turtle doves or two young pigeons would be acceptable. And you can find all of that in Leviticus chapter 12. Mary and Joseph weren't wealthy by any means. They couldn't afford to offer up a lamb. But they were doing the best they could to abide by the Old Testament law. You know, you've got these two young kids making this trip to Jerusalem to dedicate their newborn son to the Lord because the Bible told them to. But they can't afford part of the requirement, which is a lamb. So they're here offering up two turtle doves instead. Do you notice the awesome irony here in all of this? They couldn't afford the price of a lamb to offer as a sacrifice. You know they would have if they could. They made the trip to Jerusalem. They've been faithful in every other way. But they just couldn't afford the price of a sacrificial lamb. They had to accept the Levitical substitute, which was two turtle doves. But the baby that they're carrying with them to dedicate to the Lord became the sacrificial lamb of God to not only cover their sins, but the sins of the entire world and of all human history. Jesus became our sacrificial lamb because God knew that we couldn't afford the price to pay for our sins. Mary and Joseph didn't know it, but when they dedicated their son to the Lord, they did offer up a sacrificial lamb, not only for themselves, but for all of us. Continuing on, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was devout, cautiously and carefully observing the divine law and looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been divinely revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It's amazing how history repeats itself, folks. You know, the people of that time period had the complete Old Testament, full of prophecies of Jesus' first and second coming. All of the details were there in black and white, but not everybody read it. They got it spoon-fed to them by the religious leaders who had gotten into the routines, the ceremonies, and the traditions of the Old Testament, but had forgotten what it all meant. But there were those who did read it, who had developed a personal relationship with God, and they knew how close the Messiah's first coming was. Now, they didn't know the exact date, but they observed the history and the current events of the world around them, and they knew it was close. They understood the prophecies in the Old Testament about his coming. They had the book of Daniel. They had the book of Isaiah. And it prophesied all of this about the condition of Israel, the unmarried woman who was a virgin, the fact that he would be born in Bethlehem. All of it was pre-recorded in the Old Testament. They knew it was close. But most of the religious leaders were clueless, even the good ones like Zechariah. Just one year earlier, Zach tried to argue with the angel Gabriel in the temple about what was possible and impossible for God. 
wound up getting his tongue tied for nine months. He was a priest and was clueless as to the times he was living in. But there were others who did know. And here we have this guy, Simeon, who's been waiting. And verse 26. It had been divinely revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. So this is an older guy who's expecting to see the Messiah at any day now. Every time he goes to the temple, he wonders, is this the day? Verse 27. Prompted by the Holy Spirit, he came into the temple enclosure. And when the parents brought in the little child Jesus to do for him what was customary, according to the law... Simeon took him up in his arms and praised and thanked God and said, And now, Lord, you are releasing your servant to depart this world in peace, according to your word. For with my own eyes I have seen your salvation, which you have ordained and prepared before in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, to disclose to them what was before unknown, and to bring praise and honor and glory to your people Israel. Folks, he's paraphrasing here Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6 which says, I, the Lord, have called you, addressing the Messiah, for a righteous purpose and in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and will keep you, and I will give you for a covenant to the people Israel and for a light to the nations, the Gentiles, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who sit in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Ooh, well, that settles a few debates, doesn't it? Simeon says all of this, and Mary and Joseph are just standing there with their mouths open. Verse 33 says, And his legal father and his mother were marveling at what was being said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and then said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed and destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against. And a sword will pierce through your own soul, that the secret thoughts and purposes of many hearts may be brought out and disclosed. Wow, what a thing to tell her. I wonder if she knew what he meant. Folks, he was paraphrasing and referring to a couple of passages in Isaiah, the first one being Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, that said, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our guilt. The needful to obtain peace and well-being for us was upon him. And with the stripes that wounded him, we are healed and made whole. He also paraphrased Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15 that said, He shall be a sanctuary, a sacred and indestructible asylum to those who reverently fear and trust him. But he shall be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble thereon, and they shall fall and be broken and be snared and taken. All of that in just a couple of verses in Isaiah, folks. This guy Simeon knew all about what was coming for this little baby. He knew his destiny. I wonder if Mary knew how well he knew. Continuing on in verse 36, And there was also there at the temple a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, having lived with her husband seven years from her maidenhood, and as a widow for eighty-four years. Wow, she was old. Married for seven years, widowed for eighty-four. If she was married at thirteen, that'd make her a hundred and four. Good grief. She did not go out from the temple enclosure, but was worshipping night and day with fasting and prayer, and she too came up at that same hour, and she returned thanks to God and talked of Jesus to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had done everything according to the law of the Lord, they went back into Galilee to their own town, Nazareth. Now folks, that verse, verse 39, is a very condensed version of what happened between them being in Bethlehem and Nazareth. 
to get the whole story, you've got to go to Matthew chapter 2. At this point, we don't know how much time has passed since Jesus' birth and dedication. But for reasons you'll see here in a little bit, it could have been anywhere between six months to two years. We're about to get into a part of the Christmas story here that really isn't part of the Christmas story. The wise men and the star. We often think about this in connection with the manger scene, but Mary and Joseph didn't spend six months to two years in the stable. Matthew chapter 2 verse 11 clearly points out that Mary and Joseph by this time lived in a house. And for whatever reason, they decided to stay there in Bethlehem for a while. So let's pick this up at Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, some of your Bibles may say astrologers, from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east at its rising, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was disturbed and troubled, and the whole of Jerusalem with him. Folks, there's a lot of confusion and mystery surrounding the identity of these wise men. Some Bibles call them astrologers because of the star business. The casual view of who these guys were is that they were financially well-to-do scholars of some kind. Another view, in addition to that, was that they were actually kings from foreign lands. I'm sure you remember that Christmas song that even gets sung in some churches, We Three Kings Have Heard on High. Well, it turns out that all of this is based on legends. There's no historical basis for any of this. First of all, there's nothing in Matthew that says there were three of them. It's assumed there were three, because they present three gifts to Jesus when they eventually find him. Actually, it wasn't even three gifts. It was three types of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As for the quantity, the Bible doesn't say. And as for who these wise men really were, you have to go back to the original language and do a little digging. Matthew called them the Magi, M-A-G-I. The Magi were originally a cult religious group that had its roots in ancient Babylon. It became the state religion of Persia after some Magi were attached to the Median court for being experts in the interpretation of dreams. In the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar was always looking for the interpretation of his dreams. He was always inquiring of the Magi. The King James called them magicians. But Daniel accurately interpreted his dreams, and the king put him in charge over the Magi. So with Daniel being in charge, the prophecies of the coming Messiah were known by the Magi. Fast forward 600 years. The Magi had both priestly offices and government offices. It's where we get the word magistrate. And the duties of the Magi at that time included the absolute choice and election of the king of a realm under Persian Parthian control. Now, during the time of Matthew chapter 2, the Persian Parthian Empire and the Roman Empire were the two great powers of the world. The control over Jerusalem had gone back and forth. At this point in the story, Rome had just managed, through political maneuvering, to get control over Jerusalem again, and they set it up as a buffer state between themselves and the Persian Parthian Empire. King Herod wasn't really a Jewish king. He was appointed by Rome. He was an Edomite. He was a tool of Rome. So things were pretty stressful for King Herod. The Jews didn't really like him because he wasn't a true Jewish king. The Romans were just using him. And at any time, his own subjects could conspire in bringing the Parthians to their aid. So while Mary and Joseph are living in Bethlehem during the first month or maybe first year or two of Jesus' life, Israel is under Roman control, but barely. At any time, the Persian Parthian Empire could take it back. 
Israel's king is an appointee of Rome. And then suddenly, Magi show up. The Persian religious and political magistrates, whose duties included the absolute choice and election of who was to be king of a realm in their territory. They were probably traveling in style, with all the political and national symbols, and in force, with their own cavalry to ensure their safe penetration to Roman territory. So with all that in context, let's get back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east at its rising, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was disturbed and troubled, and the whole of Jerusalem with him. Yeah, I bet he was. Herod, along with everyone else, is probably wondering, Is Persia planning to take Israel back from Rome? This is certainly a bold move to send the Magi over here. By caravan, that's about a year's journey. They weren't just passing through. This was front page news. What are they doing here? And with the question they're asking, it implies that they don't recognize Herod as Israel's king. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Something else kind of weird here about their statement. They said, we have seen his star in the east at its rising and have come to worship him. This is weird on multiple levels, folks. The Magi were a religion that wasn't biblical. It was a pagan religion. It had a lot of similarities with the God of the Old Testament. They believed in a single God as creator of the universe. They also believed that there was a single opposing spirit that was evil. They had their own form of priesthood and so on and so forth. But they didn't follow the Old Testament. They had all kinds of weird occultic practices that involved astrology and things like that. But throughout the centuries... They had combined all of that with what they learned from Daniel 600 years ago. And they apparently saw something in the sky that they called a star that they associated with the birth of the king of the Jews, the Messiah. And they made a year's journey to do what? They said, we have come to worship him. Apparently, they learned more from Daniel about this coming Messiah than is generally known. And they held on to what they learned for 600 years. And whatever it was they saw, it led them to Israel. It's disappeared now for some reason. It didn't lead them to Bethlehem. It only led them to Israel, so they went to Israel's capital, if I can use that word, in search of the new king who was born king of the Jews. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was disturbed and troubled, and the whole of Jerusalem with him. So he called together all the chief priests and learned men and scribes of the people and anxiously asked them where the Christ was to be born. Herod is now all of a sudden a believer of Old Testament prophecy. And they replied to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are not in any way least or insignificant among the chief cities of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will govern and shepherd my people Israel. Folks, the scribes there were paraphrasing Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It was written more than 700 years before this conversation took place. Although there is one neat little nugget in that verse that they didn't paraphrase. If you go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, you are little to be among the cities of Judah, or the clans of Judah. Yet out of you shall one come forth for me who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, of everlasting. Old of everlasting. Folks, when you get into the original Hebrew, the Hebrew word there implies a state of existence before time began. So the religious leaders there, the scholars, tell Herod, according to the prophet Micah, that the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. Which, by the way, why weren't they excited about this? 
They knew Micah 5 too. Why weren't they in Bethlehem searching around for the biblically prophesied newborn king of the Jews? Doesn't that say something about the religious leaders? Then Herod sent for the Magi secretly and ascertained from them the first moment they saw the star to the last moment before it disappeared. Herod's trying to get an idea of how old the newborn king of the Jews is. Verse 8. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search for the child carefully and diligently, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may too go and worship him. Yeah, right. When they had listened to the king, they went their way, and behold, the star which had been seen in the east in its rising went before them again, until it came and stood over the place where the young child was. When they saw the star, they were thrilled with ecstatic joy. Folks, let's talk a little bit about this star I've read where people have tried to come up with some astrological or astronomical explanation for this. I've heard people talk about the passage of comets during this time period. I've heard them talk about the position of certain planets at that time. As though any of that could possibly be an adequate explanation for what we're seeing here. Verse 9 says the star stood over the place where the young child was. That means whatever this thing was, it was within our atmosphere. And it had to be pretty low in order for there to be any perception of depth. You ever notice that when you're driving at night, the stars move as you do? You can't follow a star. When the Bible uses the term star, it means a small point of bright light in the sky. In Genesis, it says God made the sun, the moon, and the stars, i.e. points of light. Not all of the points of light in the sky are solar objects. Some of them are planets. When scientists discovered that stars were solar objects, much like our own sun, then we redefined the word star. We call our own sun a star now. It's a star that's very close to us. But we don't sit on our porch in the evening to watch a star set, do we? We watch a sunset. So this point of light that was in the sky that led the Magi to the house where Jesus was, it was something supernatural within our atmosphere. Some have theorized that it could have been an angel. There are some passages in the Bible that make a linkage between stars and angels. It's been my view that some of the UFOs videotaped by UFO spotters in recent years are actually fallen angels putting on a show to advance the New Age movement. So we don't know what this thing was that the Magi saw. All we do know is that it looked like a star and it was inside our atmosphere so that its movement could direct the Magi to where Jesus was. Now, some people have wondered if this whole business with the star was satanic. They look at the Magi and they say, hey, it's a pagan religion. The Magi, they were the ones who informed King Herod of the existence of the Christ child to begin with, and he eventually attempts to have Jesus killed. The king didn't know anything about Jesus until the Magi showed up. So some people wonder if this star was satanic. But there's a big problem with that theory. Why would Satan want to lead the Magi to Jesus if all they wanted to do was worship him? And why lead the Magi? Why not just lead Herod or Herod's troops? So this raises an even bigger question. Why would God entertain the fancies of a religious cult? You've got to remember, the God of the Bible had a reputation in the eyes of these Magi that was first introduced to them by Daniel 600 years ago. So this wasn't God condoning the Magi religion. It was God living up to his name. And what doesn't get recorded in the scriptures is what happened to these individuals of the Magi afterward. Yeah, sure, we know about Persian history and something about the Magi religion itself, but these particular individuals who traveled a year's journey in search of the one who was to be the prophesied Messiah, 
We don't know what happened to them. But in this one little chapter, they showed more faith than the religious leaders did. The religious leaders didn't go to Bethlehem. A lot of them didn't even know that the Messiah was coming. And those that did didn't seem to show any interest. But the Magi made a year's journey to find him. When they saw the star, they were thrilled with ecstatic joy. It went before them until it came and stood over the place where the young child was. Verse 11. And on going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Can you imagine what Mary and Joseph thought about all of this? I mean, their little boy is somewhere between one to two years of age. They received this huge visit from the Magi that was causing all the buzz in Jerusalem. And they fall down on their knees to worship him. I mean, if you're a mom, can you imagine important strangers coming to your house, entering in, and then bowing down on their knees to your little one-and-a-half-year-old boy? And on going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure bags, they presented to him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Folks, it doesn't say anything about how many gifts were given or the quantity of each, but here we have recorded three types of gifts. And there's a lot of symbolism behind gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold always symbolized royalty, or specifically in the biblical sense, deity. So the gifts of gold symbolized their recognition of his royal office, his deity. Frankincense was used by Jewish priests. It was mixed with the showbread. So the gifts of frankincense symbolized their recognition of his priestly office. Myrrh was a spice that was used on a corpse for burial. So the gifts of myrrh symbolized their recognition of what his mission would be. To suffer and die as the suffering servant. To take away the sin of the world. With these types of gifts... The Magi recognized Jesus' deity, his royalty, his priesthood, and his death. There's another way you can look at this. If gold equals his deity, his royal office, then that covers the world of politics. If frankincense equals the priesthood, his priestly office, then that covers the world of religion. If myrrh equals his suffering death, then that covers the world of servanthood. Or you could say myrrh represents death itself. The laws of physics under the curse. Politics, religion, and the laws of science. He's everything. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. We find out later in the book of Revelation, after Jesus comes back to the planet Earth, and the Antichrist has been put in his place, and Jesus rules over the universe from David's throne in Jerusalem, he's offered gifts again. Gold and frankincense, but no myrrh. The death, the cross, all that's behind him. His royal office and his priestly office are eternal, but there's no more death. But anyway, the Magi visited Jesus' home, presented him gifts, bowed down on their knees to worship him. And verse 12, receiving an answer to their asking, they were divinely instructed and warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Evidently, folks, the Magi had a feeling Herod wasn't really interested in worshiping Jesus. And apparently they prayed about whether or not they should go back to Herod and give a report. Because verse 12 says, receiving an answer to their asking, they were divinely instructed and warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they departed to their own country by a different way. And that's the last we ever hear from the Magi. Verse 13. Now after they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, tenderly take unto you the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, 
and remain there till I tell you otherwise, for Herod intends to search for the child in order to destroy him. And having risen, he took the child and his mother by night and withdrew to Egypt and remained there until Herod's death. Folks, we don't know how long that took, but it probably wasn't too long because Herod was gravely ill at this time. Everybody was waiting for Herod to die for one reason or another. Then Matthew makes a strange connection of this to Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. Matthew writes, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt have I called my son. I say it's strange because if it weren't for Matthew, I never would have made the connection. Because that verse in Hosea, in its context, doesn't seem to have anything to do with this. And yet, when you look at it carefully, the phrase, I have called my son out of Egypt, stands out. My son. There are some similarities between Israel's exodus from Egypt and what's happening here in the book of Matthew. When Israel was under Egyptian slavery and Moses was born, Pharaoh found out about it when his counselors informed him of a star that proclaimed his birth. And then Pharaoh ordered the death of all the Jewish babies. See the similarities? Moses himself, before he became the tool that God wanted him to be, he wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. The same thing happened to Jesus right before his ministry. See, there's two kinds of prophecies. There's the kind that's obvious, where it's right there in black and white, like in Daniel and Isaiah. There shall be a Savior born in Bethlehem, stuff like that. We'll discover a lot of those as we go on, by the way. And some of them are so bold and precise, it'll give you goosebumps. But then there are those obscure prophecies, where it really isn't a proclamation by a prophet, but a scenario that actually happened in history and was recorded in the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit uses it as a model, kind of like a stage play. For example, there really was an Abraham. He really did have a son named Isaac. And God really did tell Abraham to sacrifice his son. Of course, you know the story. Isaac didn't die. At the last minute, God offered a substitute. That really happened. It's a matter of history. But it was a stage play. Abraham was playing the role of God the Father. Isaac was in the role of Jesus Christ. You go back and read that account in Genesis. Even after we know Isaac didn't really get killed, the moment after Isaac was going to be sacrificed, his name is conspicuously absent from the storyline. Even though you know he's there, for some reason his name's absent. Until something that happens three days later. Then all of a sudden his name shows up again. When Jesus died on the cross, when was he resurrected? Three days later. Spooky stuff. And as we go through the book of Matthew, he'll say, this fulfilled that prophecy. And most of them are obvious. Some of them require a little homework. And we're going to try to limit ourselves to the ones that are obvious so we don't get distracted. But I just wanted to share that with you in case you ever get hung up on what's supposed to be a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And you go back and look at it, and it's like, huh? Some of them require a more broad understanding of the whole story. And we'll get into all of those when we start reading through the Old Testament. So anyway, Joseph took Mary and Jesus to hide in Egypt to wait for Herod's death. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been misled by the Magi, he was furiously enraged, and he sent and put to death all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that territory who were two years of age and under, reckoning according to the date which he had investigated diligently and had learned exactly from the Magi. See, the Magi made a year's journey. We don't know if they started the moment the star appeared or what. Jesus was at least a year old. Add to that time, the Herod waited for the Magi to return. Herod orders the death of all the pale children who were two years of age and under. Verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. You know, folks, you can start in Genesis and work your way up all the way to Matthew to see Satan's desperate and vicious attempts 
at doing everything he knows to do to stop Jesus from coming. Once Satan realized the Messiah would be a man, a human, Satan tried to ruin the human gene pool in Genesis chapter 6. When Satan realized the Messiah would be a Jew, he had Egyptian slavery. Then the death of the Jewish male children when Moses was born. After Israel was delivered from Egypt, you have Ramses trying to kill them all at the Red Sea. Then after Egypt is no longer a threat, Satan finds out where the Jews are to settle and sets up a minefield of giants there. When Satan finds out that the Messiah will be of the bloodline of David, then Satan focuses all of his attacks on the lineage of David. He even sends Goliath when David was a kid. Just a ruthless, persistent, desperate attempt all throughout history to stop Jesus from coming. And now he lives, but he's a child. And through Herod, Satan tries again to stop God's plan of redemption, but fails. And then Herod finally dies, verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Rise, tenderly take unto you the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Then he awoke and arose and tenderly took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But because he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being divinely warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. He went and dwelt in a town called Nazareth, so that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene, which means a branch or separated one. I'm sure you had people back then, folks, debating over the prophecies of the Old Testament just like we do today. You know, you have these two prophecies that seem to contradict each other. One says he'll be born in Bethlehem. Another says he'll be called a Nazarene. How do you reconcile those? Well, this is how. Jesus was born in Bethlehem and spent his infancy there but moved to Nazareth and was raised there. He grew up there. The child grew up and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and the grace and the favor and the spiritual blessing of God was upon him. And this brings us to the conclusion of the Christmas story. <laughs> 